You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, let us pray together. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding and conviction of your word that you would lead us into the truth, and that you would help me as I seek to explain it tonight. We ask in the name of Christ, amen. So if you've come from a non-Reformed background, uh, perhaps Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism, you, you might know or have noticed when you've come into a Protestant church that there is a difference as to how we number the commandments. Roman Catholics and Lutherans consider what we just read as part of the first commandment. And what they do is they split the last one, the tenth one, uh, to make up the difference. Uh, but there is reason as to why we do that. We believe that this is the beginning of the second commandment. That, in fact, there is a difference between what we've read here in verses 4 through 6 and what is said there in verse in verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, there is a difference when you consider it. In fact, I've perhaps been a little confused myself over the years, or I've misunderstood the commandments, these first two. Uh, when you read the second one here, beginning at verse 4, maybe you think that this forbids idolatry. In one sense, it does. But really, the first commandment deals with that. You shall have no other gods before me. To have any other god besides the living and true God, the God of Scripture, the God of Israel, is to have an idol, a false god. And as we've seen before, that can be just about anything. But the, the commandment here, the second commandment, deals with something a little different. The first commandment deals with who it is we are to worship. And the second commandment deals with how we are to worship that God. And we could put it in the negative as it is put in the commandments. Really, we are told how not to worship God. So as we think about the second commandment, I just want to break the passage into three sections here. Uh, the, the commandment, that is its prohibition. And then second, its cursing. And then third, it's blessing. So what is the commandment telling us? Uh, what is the curse or the cursing for disobeying the commandment? And what is the blessing uh, for obeying the commandment? First of all, it's prohibition. Now you can see there, he says, through Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any, any likeness, anything that is heaven on the earth or the water under the earth and so forth. So what is he saying here? Well, some translations, as the New King James say, carved image, you shall not make a carved image. Uh, the older translation says graven or cut image. The New American Standard says idol, you shall not make for yourself an idol. The actual Hebrew uh, basically means this, 
to make something that is shaped or fashioned as a worship icon, as a God, representing a God. And so the commandment is not telling us that we may never carve something, that we may never uh, make a replica of something or someone. Perhaps you've wondered that. It's clear from the context and the Hebrew, putting those two together, that the idea of what is forbidden is that we carve or make something or have some image in order to worship it or to worship God, even the living and true God, through it. That's what is forbidden. That's the idea here. If you look, it says uh, in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Again, this is the language of worship, bowing down. Now, in some Middle Eastern uh, and ancient uh, cultures, uh, in biblical culture, uh, to bow down could have been a greeting to show infer- in, uh, that you're inferior to someone else. But also it can and does mean at times to worship. Uh, for instance, uh, in Psalm 95, 6, we read that as the call to worship. It says, Oh, come and let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. And perhaps you recall that when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, uh, Satan said this in verse 9. He says, all of these things. He showed Jesus all of the, the kingdoms and so forth. He says, All of these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So the idea is prostration, uh, to to worship and to serve. Hopefully you have seen by now that this word serve often in Scripture means worship. To worship and serve God are the same thing. And so children, maybe you've wondered why Do we bow our heads when we pray? Well, that's one of the the ways that we show our reverence to God. It's one of the postures of prayer in the Scripture. It's not the only way people actually look towards the heavens and pray, or they pray while they're lying or standing. But to bow your head is to show that you're worshiping God and that you recognize that He is the superior one, the living and true God. And so in Exodus 4.31, it says that the people bowed their heads and worshipped God. In Revelation 19.10, John, he fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said, the angel said to John, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so the, the thing that is forbidden here is to, to carve something, to make an idol, an icon, an image, and to worship it, or to worship the living and true God through it. And so God is telling us how we are not to worship Him, and what way we are not to worship Him in this commandment. And so, in essence, he is telling us how to worship him. And we've seen this in the months past. We did a series through, uh, or concerning worship, and we talked about 
the principle that comes from this commandment when it comes to worship. The regulative principle of worship. God regulates our worship. God tells us how it is we are to worship Him. It comes from this commandment. When you think about it, first of all, this commandment, um, or rather the principle, the regulative principle, uh, tells us um, how it is we are to worship God. And basically, when it comes to the worship of God, there are two approaches. Men will say one of two things generally. Uh, They will say either we may do what is not forbidden in Scripture. So in other words, if it's not forbidden, we may do it. That's kind of the Lutheran approach to worship. Then there's the Reformed, which says we may only do what God commands in Scripture. We may only do in worship what God commands. And uh, in the chapter on worship in the Westminster Confession, it talks about this, chapter 21. And as you saw through the order of worship in the larger catechism as well. So that regulative principle says we may only do in worship what the Bible commands by explicit command or by what we call good and necessary consequence, what we may deduce from Scripture. And remember, in Deuteronomy 4, it's repeated as well at the end of Revelation. God says, you may not add to my word nor take away from it. That's the principle there. So in this commandment, we see there is to be no visible representation of God, no worship given to any object other than the living and true God. And it reminds us, it teaches us that we are to worship according to the word of God. That's what the commandment is saying. It's serious enough that perhaps you know that in Leviticus 10, the priest Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and it says there, they offered strange fire. Well, what does it mean by strange fire? Well, the fire is the offering. They were, they were offering their sacrifice to God, and yet it was strange. Well, in Leviticus 10... In the first few verses, it says that they offer that strange fire, a fire which he, God, had not commanded them. And what happened? God killed them. He made an example of them for the rest of Israel and for the rest of the church, even to this day. And that's not to say if if you um, offer strange fire today that God is going to zap you and kill you. But the wages of sin is death. And so it wasn't unjust. Um, They violated the commandment. And God was showing how serious it is. And also, by the way, I think, too, there's a reference there to Christ. Because if you don't approach God, the living God, through Christ, you get death. But this principle and this commandment, therefore, is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes Isaiah in Matthew 15 and verse 9. He says, but in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so they're commandments given to us by men, not by God. And what they're doing is they're teaching that those commandments, those man-made requirements and commandments are, in fact, from from God. And remember Jesus' conversation in John 4 with the woman at the well? 
he says there, you know, they're talking about worship. She raises this question she perceives as a prophet. Well, where are we supposed to worship? There is this, this debate. And Jesus says, well, there's coming a time when neither at this mountain or that mountain, but, but anywhere, basically, is what he's telling her. But he says in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the question is, is he saying in spirit with the capital S? Is he referring to the Holy Spirit, or is he referring to our inner man, the spirit from the heart? The answer, I think, is yes. Um, so if you take it to mean the Holy Spirit, you must worship in spirit, according to the Spirit, um, worshiping God by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? He is the one who gives us that new heart prophesied in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah 31. And so it's only then that we can truly worship God when we have a new heart given to us by the Holy Spirit. So then it will be from the heart, a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit, in spirit, but also in truth, that is, in accordance with truth. Thy word, John 17, 17, is truth. So there's the theology of word and spirit, and we are to worship God according to his word. Yes, we are to get it right. We are to do it, as it says here, according to the commandment, but also from the heart, a heart renewed by God. And there are those who want to just fly according to their emotions and uh, worship God according to their feelings. Well, you know, that will be reined in as they worship God in truth. And then there are those who want to worship God and they want to do it according to his word and they focus on that, but perhaps they forget about the in spirit part. So it's not either or, it's both. Colossians 2, Paul in verse 23 talks about will worship, W-I-L-L. That is the worship that is according to the inventions of men. And that is to be forbid. And so when you think about this commandment, eventually the question will arise, well, what about pictures of Jesus? Right? That's an issue we have to deal with when it comes to this commandment. And uh, in, in the years past, there's been Great Commission publications, and I bring that up for a reason. Um, it is a joint venture, has been, through our denomination and the PCA, working together for discipleship material, Sunday school literature, and so forth. And whenever they deal with the Gospels, and they're the disciples, and perhaps Jesus, if there is going to be a picture of Jesus, guess what? They show the backside. So you might see some hair. And there's a reason for that. They don't have a true picture of Jesus. Because to do so would be a violation of this commandment. Um, if you're interested in reading an article on that, John Murray has one, but he basically makes several points. He talks about the fact that we have no revealed data concerning the, the image of Christ, what he looked like in the scriptures. I mean, we can read Isaiah 53 and know that he had a beard. Um, and uh, elsewhere, we can learn other things about him perhaps, but we don't know exactly what he looked looked like, and so when I see a picture of Jesus and somebody's talking about it, I'm like, who is that? I don't know. Um, and it's interesting, people want to make Jesus into their own image, their own skin color, and that sort of thing. I don't think he looked very effeminate, by the way. Maybe he had longer hair, but uh, he was a carpenter. Uh, but 
Murray makes that point. And then he says we can't avoid making such an image uh, the medium of our worship. Eventually, we're going to worship God through that. And we're going to think about that picture when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't forget, by the way, Jesus is the God-man. Even if we had a Polaroid, well, some of you may not know what a Polaroid is. If you had a picture of Jesus, um, it still would not be an adequate representation because he's not only man, he is God in the flesh. And uh, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so God is telling us here, He's teaching us how to worship Him. As Calvin said, as soon as images appear, religion is corrupted and adulterated. And God's given us two pictures that we may and are supposed to use in worship. You know what they are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the ones that God has given to us. The sacraments. And so this commandment deals with not only who we are to worship, but how we must worship God as he is prescribed in his word, avoiding the inventions of men. Second, let's talk about the cursing involved here. Uh, the threat, the warning that God gives. If you look there in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for this reason, for I, the Lord, your God, he's reminding them he is their God, the one with whom they are in covenant. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So think about it. He's saved them. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's brought them finally to the mountain. He's delivering to them his commands, his law, telling them how to live. He is their husband. They are his bride in the Old Testament. And so it's like the bride is getting to know her husband here. He's revealing more and more about himself. And remember that jealousy is not always a bad thing. God is jealous. He is a jealous God. He's jealous for the truth. He's jealous for the hearts of his people, their loyalty, their affection, and, of course, their obedience to him. And, and you ladies, you wives and wives-to-be, hopefully you would appreciate a little jealousy on the part of your husband, jealousy for you, that you do not go after other men or that he does not allow other men to pursue you. Well, God is doing that here to his bride. Christ does that to his bride. And so he gives us this warning. He is a jealous God. In verse 5, he is jealous for our love and devotion uh, to him. But then he says something pretty startling there. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So notice here that God visits iniquity. God visits sin. God punishes sin. God chastises the sins of men. Here, the sins of the fathers it's talking about. 
And he addresses the fathers. Why? Because as much as the feminists don't want to hear it today, I'm bringing it up because it is, it is fitting. It needs to be said. Um, the fathers are the head of the home, biblically speaking. Where there is no father, the mother is the head of the home. And of course, that doesn't mean the, the mother, the wife is less than the father and all of that. But he addresses here the fathers because they're the ones to see that the true religion is maintained in their household. That is the father's responsibility, the husband's responsibility. But God says he visits the iniquity of the fathers here. Now, this isn't a, a, a physical visitation on the part of God, right? Uh, it's talking about something that's figurative or in really uh, in God's providence. Think about this. In Scripture, God talks about visiting his people with salvation and blessing. In Genesis 50, in verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God will visit them, that is, through his power and his good and kind providence and deliver them and bring them into the promised land. God visits people through judgment and cursing. In Exodus 32 and verse 33, it talks about the angel going before you. And God says there, nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. And if you've read Matthew 24, Luke 19, perhaps you will know that Jesus promises the destruction of Jerusalem based on Israel's unfaithfulness to God and for the reason of crucifying the Lord of glory himself. In Luke 19, in verse 44, as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he says there, talking of their destruction by the Romans in A.D. 70, he says of the Romans, they will not leave in you, Jerusalem, one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The visitation of God through judgment, through the Romans leveling the temple, the walls, and the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. So God here in the commandment promises, we could say at the very least, chastisement if not cursing, upon those who violate this commandment. But notice what it says, the iniquity, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. The implication is that those who hate God not only do not worship Him, they do not worship Him in the right way, but as you think about that, is this contradicting those scriptures? For instance, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 that says this. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear, bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Is there a contradiction here? The son shall not bear the guilt of the father. But here, God promises, uh, verse 5, 
that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. What does he mean? Well, think about David and his family. Think about David's illicit child born from an adulterous relationship. Well, that son died as curse of God. Now, did that child commit the sin? No. David committed the sin in Bathsheba. And so God took that child. It's not that the child was cursed because of David's sin, but part of David's chastisement was that the child died. Or you can fast forward to the uh, 1600s and the Scottish clans, you know, the family, the true family feuds. They were fighting over land and cattle and all these things. Well, think if you were born into one of those families. Um, your father and his father and his father, they had been fighting for years, and you're born into this family. Well, guess what? <laughs> there you are, and you haven't chosen a side, but your life is now going to be affected because of this feud that's going on. Or think of the children of the gambler or the drunkard. You know, in Proverbs 13, it says that the way of the transgressor is hard. Well, the way is also hard for the transgressor's children when you think about it. And so because they're a part of that household, they are affected. And eventually, the children will more than likely adopt the practices of that home when it comes to worship. If they worship God in ways that are forbidden in His Word and become idolaters themselves, guess what? They're going to be held responsible for their actions and their sins unless they repent, come back to the living God, and worship Him in the right way. And so this is serious. And so based on that, let me ask you a question. Do you think that God is concerned with the way that He is worshipped? Of course. Of course He is. In fact, we see here that he has a zeal for his own worship, and we see here that he is concerned that the covenantal heads of the home preserve not only that we worship him in our homes, but that we worship him in the right way for generation after generation. It's that serious to the living God. So much that he threatens this upon our children and our children's children. And so we need to be careful that we do not tinker with or readjust the worship of God based on our own preferences, um, our own likes, or what is popular in culture. Now there are things, there is, I guess I could, for lack of a better term, there is some wiggle room in worship. There are times and places, and even the order of worship, how we do certain things, we have certain liberties within the worship of God. But He commands us that we do certain things, and if it's not commanded, we don't do those things. But He doesn't leave us there, thankfully. In verse 6, He says, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my Commandments. And so we come to the blessing of keeping this commandment, 
And uh, as I put it in those terms, and as you read what is there in verse 6, the question is, well, is this works-based? No way. Not at all. Um, We've already established that God, in His mercy, delivered Israel from the Egyptians. And the preface to the commandment, or the Ten Commandments in verses 1 and 2, show us that He has delivered them, that He has saved them, and He's telling them to live this way. And so He makes that clear. Other scriptures make it clear as well. So the point then is that we obey this commandment, that God requires our zealous worship of Him, our joyful and sincere worship according to His Word from the heart. As Jesus put it, if you love me, then obey my commandments. Show your love for me by obeying my commandments. And if you're a true Christian, why would you not want to worship God in the way that He has prescribed in His Word on His holy day? And so He says, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The idea is, those who love God and those who keep His commandments are those upon whom He has shed His mercy. That's the idea. Think about his mercy, by the way. His mercy, which is new every morning, every day. It is his mercy. Let me stop for a moment. Um, We talk about grace being the unmerited favor of God. God's mercy is his treating us not according to our sins. By showing good to us, And kindness to us in spite of our sins. Justice is God treating us according to our sins. Just as they deserve. And so God is a merciful God. Again, they're new every morning. And His mercy attends the rain. It attends every bite of food that we eat every day. And it attends our every breath. I love the way that Micah 7, 18 puts it concerning God's mercy. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in what? Mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Beloved, He has dealt, He has subdued our iniquities through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will subdue our iniquities when He makes us perfect and translates us into heaven. And so then, we say... Or we should say uh, that, Lord, we love you. We submit to you. We surrender to you. We will worship you alone, and we will worship you in the way that you have prescribed in your word. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your commandments that show us how to please you, and we know that we are not perfect. Um, When we worship you in the way that you prescribe, we might sing off-key. Our minds might wonder or wander when your word is read. But Lord, we bring unto you the sacrifice of praise, and because we bring them in the name of Christ, we know that you are pleased and that you take our worship and perfect it. Your spirit does this, even our prayers in Romans 8, we are told. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us and our children and our children's children and the generations after them, not only to worship you, the living and true and triune God, but to worship you according to your commands in Scripture. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.